1: new season out on spotify soon some powerful people toe the line between hero and villain and for better or worse life-altering decisions are left in their hands if you like this episode we have so much more where it came from explore the original series villains and peel back layers of evil to expose the origins impacts and complexities of our favorite anti-heroes VILLAINS is free to listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Greetings, listeners. I'm Alastair Murden. If you're just joining us, our last three episodes have been following a fairly chaotic theme. In Godzilla, we explored how a man-made disaster can have shockwaves that resonate to the present day. In Fight Club's Tyler Durden, we explored a more personal form of chaos, one that pushes a man to reject society as a whole. With Poison Ivy, we carried that a step further into society's chaotic relationship with its own planet. For the final episode of this season, we're going to be discussing a villain who uses pure chaos to teach a lesson to mankind. His very name is a spoiler for the comic he appears in so if you have not read the most influential and acclaimed graphic novel of all time, you have been warned. For the rest of you, sit back and enjoy our episode on Adrian Veidt, the villain behind Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' Watchmen. Released in installments from September of 1986 to October of 1987, Watchmen, was like no comic that had ever come before it. Its story was cynical, politically incendiary, and packed with literary themes. But let's take a step back and start with the setting. The story of Watchmen takes place in a world that is similar to the 1980s we all know, but different in a number of key ways. For instance, Richard Nixon is still president in 1985 16 years after his election. The Watergate scandal never happened and he was able to abolish term limits. Also, superheroes exist. Since 1938, this version of America has seen a number of men and women fight crime on the streets while wearing masks and flamboyant costumes. Only one of them, Dr. Manhattan, has superpowers of any kind. And like all fads, this trend does not last long. Within a few decades, the public grew tired of these crime-fighting show-offs. In 77, costumed heroes were outlawed and most of the former heroes hung up their masks and retired in anonymity. Those that didn't either wound up working for the government on covert ops missions or became criminals themselves. One man charted his own path. His name was Adrian Veit. He was formerly known by the superhero name Ozymandias. In the world of watchmen, Veit was a relative latecomer to the superhero trend. Born in 1939, the year after the first costumed vigilante took to the streets, he wouldn't turn to crime-fighting until he was 19, while many of his colleagues chose the path of a hero to become famous or take out their aggression on an unjust world, Adrian Vite had nobler ambitions. The young man, feeling distant from others due to an uncommonly large intellect, only had one person he could look up to. Alexander of Macedonia, also known as Alexander the Great. And as he grew up, he held on to a central ambition to do what Alexander never could. Adrian Veidt wanted to unite the world. Upon their deaths, his wealthy parents left him everything they had, a veritable treasure trove of resources. He would later tell his employees in a self-aggrandizing monologue, my inheritance offered lifelong idle luxury, and yet, needing nothing, I burned with the paradoxical urge to do everything." He decided he would only measure his success against Alexander's and found a way to usher the world into a new era of enlightenment. Rather than following the Batman route and funneling his wealth into beating up criminals, he abandoned his wealth and went on a lengthy study abroad trip. Over the next year or so, he retraced his hero's steps, from Turkey to Alexandria, hoping to arrive at some kind of epiphany as to how to use Alexander's methods to improve the world. Instead, he discovered Alexander's failings as a leader. In his words, Alexander had not united all the world, nor built a unity that would survive him. Disillusioned, he did the only reasonable thing He got high and wandered into the desert. However, this trip was not a dead end. It would lead him to a further epiphany, that Alexander's ruling philosophy was not singular and could be traced back to the time of the pharaohs. He returned to America and donned a costume that matched his ambition, one modelled after ancient Egyptian styles, He took the greek name of the pharaoh ramses ii as his superhero identity in his words thus began my path to conquest conquest not of men but of the evils that beset them most of wight's motivation does not come out until the very last few chapters of watchmen up until that point We see him through the perspective of other characters in the story, where he seems like a disillusioned businessman, a former idealist who hung up his cape two years early in order to make a fortune merchandising his image. He is repeatedly called the smartest man on the planet, though he insists the title was not his idea, saying, I never claimed to be anyone special. I just have some over-enthusiastic PR men. His attempts at modesty do little to change the opinion of other former superheroes, who look at him as a sellout. It's not an unreasonable opinion to have. Veidt sells toys of himself and former colleagues, gives interviews to curious journalists, and even hosts a self-improvement course, Charles Atlas style, under the headline, The Veidt Method. He even has his own wildly successful cosmetics line called Nostalgia. The brand is fittingly advertised with soft and romantic imagery, evoking an idyllic and half-remembered past. In one of the comic's many dramatic ironies, most of the principal characters in Watchmen, mostly retired and embittered superheroes, wear Nostalgia-branded cologne and perfume. In spite of his company making a profit off of wistful memories, Adrian Vite's hopes do not lie in the past. Instead, he's looking toward the future. In one of the graphic novel's supplemental chapters, Veidt drafts a letter to the director of the cosmetics division of his company. In it, he orders them to phase out the nostalgia line within the year. He instructs the new cosmetics brand to be called Millennium, With the directive, the imagery associated with it will be controversial and modern, projecting a vision of a technological utopia, a whole new universe of sensations and pleasures that is just within reach. This letter, which predicts a new surge of social optimism, contrasts starkly with the hundreds of pages of misanthropic comic that came before it. In such a relentlessly cynical piece of fiction, how is this one character able to maintain such an optimistic outlook while everyone else is struggling to cope with the stark reality of 1980s America? The plot of Watchmen is kicked off by a murder. Eddie Blake, once known as the Comedian, is found dead having been thrown from a penthouse apartment. In the height of the Cold War, such an event seems innocuous compared to impending nuclear war. But the murder catches the eye of an unwashed conspiracy theorist known as Rorschach, and he spreads the word to other retired costumed heroes, including Veit. He believes that someone is trying to kill masked heroes. Veit seems unconcerned, and lets Rorschach go on his way, turning his attention back to running his business. His only real involvement in the plot throughout most of the comic is when an assassin shows up to his office to try and kill him. But as the other characters dive further into the mystery surrounding Blake's death, they're drawn into a conspiracy that makes little sense. Artists, biologists, writers, and even a recently deceased psychic have been disappearing all over America. As tensions between the United States and Soviet Russia draw the world ever closer to Armageddon, it becomes clear that something is afoot. Our heroes only learn the truth when it is too late. They learn that somehow, Adrian Veidt is behind everything, from the disappearances to Blake's murder. Why? They do not know. In issue 11 of the comic, the book's heroes arrive at Karnak, Vite's Antarctic hideout. Mandius is waiting for them there. When they ask him what he's planning, his answer is simple. What we all tried to do after our initial struggle to find our feet, I'm trying to improve the world." He then explains how his first attempt to fight the evils of humanity left him with a bitter taste in his mouth. I fought only the symptoms, leaving the disease itself unchecked. I despised myself. My sham crusade, knowing mankind's problems, I'd blinded myself to them. I felt helpless against forces greater than any I'd anticipated. He explains that the existential threats facing the planet – famine, disease, poverty and nuclear holocaust – were leading the world inexorably toward apocalypse. He compares this to the Gordian Knot, one of the most famous legends surrounding Alexander the Great. In it, Alexander was faced with a dilemma – a knot so tangled that it couldn't possibly be untied which he solved through a deceptively simple use of lateral thinking. He cut the knot with his sword. In order to untie the tangled knot of human imperfection, Veit needed to take a step back and think outside the rules of the puzzle. He couldn't untie this conflict as a hero, but using his vast resources and intelligence, he could find a way to cut through it the scope and intent of his masterstroke to create a better world is finally unveiled. And bear with me here, because it's a bit complicated. Step 1. Vite retires from his life as a costumed hero and makes a fortune merchandising his alter ego. Step 2. Once Veidt has amassed enough wealth, he has a plethora of artists, writers, and experts secretly taken away to a private island for a project. Step three: Veidt has all of these specialists design a plausible alien life form with a grotesque homeworld straight out of an H.P. Lovecraft novel. Step four. Scientists create a specimen of this alien and teleport it onto New York City, where the unstable life form explodes and kills 3 million people in the resulting psychic shockwave. This tricks both the USA and Russia into ending the Cold War. Step 5. World Peace After his lengthy monologue to his former peers, they declare They will stop him. This provokes a bemused look from Adrian. You see, he's the smartest man on the planet. He would never explain his master plan if there was any chance they could stop him. He triggered the attack 35 minutes before their arrival. Within moments, they learned that the fake alien incursion was a success. All across the world, countries initiate denuclearization talks and begin backing away from World War III. Veit is ecstatic. All the other superheroes realize that exposing Adrian's plan could only hurt the newfound peace. All of them except Rorschach, who is killed for his refusal to stay silent. though his presence before this in the comic is minimal, the two final issues of Watchmen cemented Adrian Veidt as one of the most compelling comic book villains of all time, largely because there is some controversy over whether he should be considered a villain. For Watchmen is not a comic about superheroes defeating a megalomaniacal supervillain, it's about ethics, and specifically What being a hero really means in a chaotic and uncertain world? Does it mean stopping bank robbers every day and becoming a renowned symbol of truth and justice? Or does it mean doing the unthinkable for the greater good of humanity and never taking credit for it? Because you know you'll be understandably hated for it. We'll explore this ethical dilemma, as well as some real-world Adrian fights, after this. This
0: episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be.
1: It's easy for a modern-day reader to forget that when Watchmen was written, the threat of nuclear war was a fear felt throughout the world. Now, Watchmen reads like an alternate history, not a comic written to reflect a terrifying present. Its existential edge has been dulled by the passage of time. Its superheroes, almost all of whom were directly based on discontinued Charlton Comics characters that DC had acquired, were created by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons to be jaded, nostalgic and psychopathic characters struggling with depression and the likely end of the world. The only exception is Adrian Veidt, whose character design was drawn from the Charlton Comics character Thunderbolt. He spends most of the plot on the sidelines until the other heroes confront him about his role in a conspiracy to engineer a terrorist attack on New York City. Instead of spending his time gloating about his ultimate plan, Adrian merely outlines all the ways he saw humanity courting its own destruction. How the arms race spiraled out into environmental and economic collapse. Humanity needed to be shaken out of their doomed trajectory. This line of thinking led him to an inevitable moral crisis. Even as his superhero alter ego Ozymandias, Adrian never killed a single person. As a businessman, he never even bought into any companies that would profit off of war. But his solution required him to be directly responsible for the deaths of millions. Adrian's decision ascribes to a moral philosophy known as utilitarianism, which, put simply, weighs the morality of an action based on its consequences for humanity as a whole. An action which is good, in this view, is one that maximizes the well-being of the largest number of people. From this view, killing half the population of New York City to prevent the certainty of nuclear war is the right thing to do. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. In an interview with a journalist, Adrian indirectly alludes to this philosophy by using an arms race metaphor of his own. I see 20th century society as a sort of race between enlightenment and extinction. In the same interview, Adrian discusses how the role of a hero in modern society is a fairly useless label, saying, What does fighting crime mean, exactly? Does it mean upholding the law when a woman shoplifts to feed her children? Or does it mean struggling to uncover the ones who, quite legally, have brought about her poverty? The characters we're following throughout the story, whose actions align with the more classic image of what a superhero should be doing, are doing little good to keep humanity from inching ever closer to destruction. The reason Veidt is seen as a villain is because most of the comic is viewed through the fairly myopic perspective of Rorschach, whose philosophy fits a school of ethics known as deontology. In this viewpoint, actions are considered either good or evil based on the actions themselves, not any perceived good they may cause. By this logic, Veidt should be judged by the people he killed, not by the people he saved. Veidt would argue that the sheer scope of the stakes makes a difference. In his own words, End of the world does the concept no justice. The world's present would end. Its future, immeasurably vaster, would also vanish. Even our past would be cancelled. Our struggle from the primal ooze, every childbirth, every personal sacrifice rendered meaningless, leading only to dust. Ruins become sand. Sand blows away. All our richness and color and beauty would be lost, as if it had never been. These words echo the literary inspiration for Ozymandias' superhero title. While it is a historical reference to Ramesses II, another facet of this name comes from a sonnet written by Percy Bysshe Shelley one that watchman writer Alan Moore uses to give thematic resonance to Veidt's struggle. The poem goes, I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, Nothing beside remains, round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. The point of this piece, as many an English teacher will tell you, lies in its use of dramatic irony. The contrast between the proud majesty of the inscription and the ruins it now adorns are a warning against hubris and self-importance. Ramses II supposedly inscribed a pedestal of himself with a dare for any future king to outdo his work. And then, his work was undone by the mere passage of time. This poem, which is directly quoted at the end of issue 11, informs both the grandeur that Ozymandias carries himself with, but also the existential terror at his heart. That all his work, all his accomplishments, all of humanity will fall into nothing. While he spends most of his scenes grandstanding, this existential terror is relatable and makes him more than just a moustache-twirling megalomaniac. His appalling plan is a last-ditch effort made by a man who has spent his life searching for ways to save humanity. The details of his plan are hardly an accident as well. The horrific squid alien, which may seem random and strange to a reader now, is a deliberate choice by Veidt, and by extension, Alan Moore. It recalls H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds, a novel that took the British Empire at the height of its power and humbled it with an alien invasion they were powerless to stop. Wells's book was sparked by a conversation he had about what the British Empire had done to the native Tasmanians in Australia and how it would feel for an empire to be the receiving end of colonialism. In a similar vein, the kind of trauma Vite inflicted upon America was designed to make humanity feel small and fragile again, and treat its own extinction like a threat worth taking seriously. A threat he had been obsessing over for his entire lifetime. The only real vulnerability he shows is in his very final scene, After learning his plan succeeded and peace is inevitable, Adrian has a moment of doubt. He asks the only person he considers his intellectual equal, Dr. Manhattan, if what he did was all worth it in the end. Manhattan's response? In the end, nothing ends, Adrian. Nothing ever ends. At the close of the book, Adrian, who seems remorseless until this point, is left with a glimmer of doubt. Alan Moore once said in an interview that in Watchmen, he and the other creators of the comic try to set up four or five radically opposing ways of seeing the world and let the readers figure it out for themselves. Let them make a moral decision for once in their miserable lives too many writers go for that baby bird moralizing where your audience just sits there with their beaks open and you just cram regurgitated morals down their throat heroes don't work that way anymore Moore has never stated explicitly which character he most strongly empathized with but this disillusionment with the moral certainties of comic book storytelling are reflected in adrian veit in fact veit who owns several media companies, gets some of the most meta lines in the book. The most famous of these is his response to the hero's claims they will stop him. I'm not a Republic serial villain. Do you seriously think I'd explain my masterstroke if there remained even the slightest chance of you affecting its outcome? Vite is aware of the role he fills in the other hero's storylines, but he doesn't care because they're beneath him. The sheer scope and ambition of his plans are the reason he's such a successful villain and the reason there are flaws in his master plan. This flaw was pointed out in an interview with Watchmen artist and co-creator Dave Gibbons who stated that while they wanted the novel to be morally ambiguous, he personally believes Vite was in the wrong. I think that probably is one of the worst of his sins. That it's kind of looking down on the rest of humanity scorning the rest of humanity i think he really wanted to save the world but the problem with people of ego is their ego can't see their ego moore likely wouldn't agree though he has made no such definitive statements He has gone on record saying that he believes Watchmen failed as a piece of literature because too many readers identified with the philosophically simplistic Rorschach and not the more high-minded Ozymandias or Dr. Manhattan. Some critics have pointed out that Rorschach, despite being a horrible person, has more relatable flaws. Few of us, after all, have had to decide between slaughtering 3 million innocents or letting 4.5 billion suffer the same fate. But there are some historical figures who have had to weigh the value of human life in a very similar fashion. Who is the real-world Adrian Vite? As the most erudite character in a book written by the famously literary Alan Moore, Veit makes more historical and cultural allusions than any other character in the comic. As we discussed, his superhero name and aesthetic are a blend of two different conquerors, Ramesses II and Alexander the Great. But those two men, though responsible for great terror and destruction in their days, are not the best historical parallel to Veidt. A more perfect example is far more close to home than many American readers of Watchmen might think. It is the very event that ushered in the nuclear age, one that we referenced in the first episode of this season. On August 6, 1945, President Harry S. Truman ordered the use of the atom bomb to end the Second World War. This was, and remains, one of the most controversial decisions ever made by an American president. In private notes and correspondence, Truman expressed no shame over the decision, only regret that the war in the Pacific had come to this. In an August 11th letter he said, Nobody is more disturbed over the use of atomic bombs than I am, but I was greatly disturbed over the unwarranted attack by the Japanese in Pearl Harbor and their murder of our prisoners of war. The only language they seem to understand is the one we have been using to bombard them. This kind of rhetoric, which claims certain groups of people only react to violent and extreme measures, Eerily echo Ozymandias' rationale for mass destruction being the only way to force both the United States and Russia to denuclearize. The rationale used by historians to justify the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings is eerily similar to how Veit justifies his own attack. The loss of life would have been far greater if the US attempted to defeat Japan the same way they had defeated Germany. According to one letter, advisors had told Truman that it would cost him at least a quarter of a million casualties and as many as a million to invade Japan. Those who question the necessity of Truman's actions suggest that Japan was already on the verge of surrendering and the bomb was a pointless atrocity. And many consider the bombings a war crime regardless of the justification. Some of President Truman's military advisers have stated rather frankly that if they had lost the war, they almost certainly would have been considered war criminals. But because they won, they got away with it. This parallel is present in the margins of the graphic novel itself. In one of Watchman's supplemental chapters, we are shown an essay written by Rorschach as a child, which contains a passage echoing this defense of Truman's decision. In Childish Prose, I like President Truman. He dropped the atom bomb on Japan and saved millions of lives because if he hadn't have, then there would have been a lot more war than there was and more people would have been killed. I think it was a good thing to drop the atomic bomb on Japan. Rorschach, the philosophical foil to Adrian White, held on to this contradictory admiration for President Truman for much of his adult life, saying near the beginning of the book that the scum of America's streets could have followed in the footsteps of good men like my father or President Truman. Decent men who believed in a day's work for a day's pay. Rorschach holds up Truman as a moral paragon while condemning Adrian Veidt for committing a similar sort of atrocity. Both actions unleash their own sort of chaos on the world. The chaos of an uncertain future and the chaos of potential nuclear holocaust. Perhaps this is a subtle hint by Moore for his American readers to not rush to judgment of Adrian's actions. He only seems like a villain because it was New York City on the receiving end of his attack, not some Japanese city we may never visit in our lifetimes. Moore asks us to consider the morality of Adrian's choices without condoning or condemning, because sometimes order rises from chaos. The uncertainty at the end of the graphic novel bugs us. We see a brief glimpse of the world after, and it is approaching Adrian's utopia. But history shows us that there is always a cooling period between moments of tension, and the official start of the Cold War, the Truman Doctrine, came a little less than two years after the end of World War II. There's a strong chance that Adrian's supposed final solution was just another temporary fix to the underlying problems of humanity Coming up Nothing ever ends Now back to the story The 1986 graphic novel Watchmen ends on a moment of horrible uncertainty The heroes of the piece uncover a conspiracy to commit mass slaughter but are utterly unable to stop it Even so, their failure may have been a good thing. In the closing pages, Adrian White's vision for a bright future seems to be coming together. The Cold War is over. Both the USA and Russia are working toward a cooperative world. And Robert Redford is considering running for president. But Rorschach's journal has found its way into the hands of a sensationalist magazine. It doesn't contain the nature of Veidt's plan, only the fact that he was behind it. And the right-wing tabloid already has an established distaste for the liberal figurehead White. The House of Cards is beautiful, but poised to come toppling down at the slightest provocation. Flash forward 21 years to the events of HBO's 2019 Watchmen miniseries. Adrian Veidt is isolated in his home in Karnak, watching the world through his wall of television screens like he used to. His promised utopia fell apart, but not because of the journal. Because in spite of the great thought and intellect behind this plan, humans are an unpredictable creature. Vite maintains peace by randomly generating small squids and dropping them harmlessly in various points around the globe. If the world still thinks there's a present danger of an alien incursion from another dimension, peace is secure. But even though he averted nuclear war, mankind does not progress forward into a shining age of enlightenment. Vite attempts to use his considerable influence to push progress but is met with resistance. In 1985, he records a message to President Robert Redford saying what he imagines the future could be in this new world. I envision a stronger, loving world, committed to caring for the weak, reversing environmental ruin, and cultivating true equality. In this recording, he says Redford will have to partner with him to build this utopia. But the president doesn't play along. The White House eventually stops returning his calls, and the evils of humanity that Veit hoped to quell, such as bigotry, cruelty, and authoritarianism, run rampant. Veit recedes into obscurity, isolated in his fortress at Karnak, seething in resentment. Vite is shaken out of his depression by the arrival of a woman named True. At first he tells her to leave him alone, but then she thanks him for what he did to save the human race in 1985. Unable to resist the simple appeal to his ego, he lets her in. Once she is inside, she explains that she is his biological daughter, created through artificial insemination. She sees herself as the heir to his legacy. True has an even more dramatic plan than her father. She wishes to siphon the energy from Dr. Manhattan into herself and use her newfound power to usher in a new era of peace. Vite is at first skeptical of this plan and turns her out of his home, saying he will never acknowledge her as his daughter. But only three years later, he witnesses a nuclear reactor meltdown on the news. He laments, why, oh, why do they keep needing to make their godforsaken bombs? In a moment of weakness, he asks Dr. Manhattan if he will ever get to see the utopia he envisioned. Manhattan tells him he will, but not on Earth, teleporting him to a paradise of Manhattan's own design, a glamorous country estate on one of the moons of Jupiter. Vite has a gorgeous manor house and a never-ending supply of servants who worship him as a god. In the original comic, Veit quips about his reputation, saying, I don't mind being the smartest man in the world. I just wish it wasn't this one. It seems that Manhattan gave him exactly what he wanted. A chance to live in a world untainted by the sins that Adrian spent his life trying to fix. A veritable Garden of Eden, over 500 million miles from Earth. But soon, he finds this perfect playground stifling. It starts to seem more like a prison. The servants lack any agency, any free will, they're perfect, and so, they are boring. He disposes of them at a whim. In one gruesome scene, a couple of servants walk in on him to find a room full of butchered bodies, to which Veit explains, I had a rough night. Soon, he's using the corpses of his willing maids and butlers to aid in his escape, spelling out the words Save me, daughter, in huge letters on the surface of Europa. Knowing that True has a satellite orbiting Jupiter every eight years, he's confident the message will spur her to come rescue him. And he is correct. A rescue ship arrives and brings him back to the world he left behind. One that is once again in need of saving. At the end of the series, Vite winds up assisting his former enemies in foiling his biological daughter's plan to become a superhuman. He explains his reasoning. She is clearly a raging narcissist whose ambition knows no limits. Anyone who seeks to attain the power of a god must be prevented at all costs from attaining it. That girl will not rest until she has us all prostrate before her. When asked why he is so sure, he says, in a startling moment of self-awareness, it takes one to know one. The end of this series is far more cut and dry than the graphic novel that preceded it. Despite his protests and his role in stopping Lady True's scheme, Adrian Veidt is arrested for the murder of three million people. The status quo is resolved and the show seems to align with Watchmen co-creator Dave Gibbon's assessment that Veidt was in the wrong. So, is this the right ending for Veidt's story? The most compelling aspect of Vite as a villain is how he made us all question whether individual heroism is possible, and whether the world truly needs dispassionate villains more than it needs heroes. Having him whacked on the head and taken into custody at the end of the series cheapens Alan Moore's intent with the character, where the man who commits the most atrocities gets to escape justice, and the reader is left to ponder whether he was in the right. But if Ozymandias is the Harry Truman of this comic book universe, there is another question worth asking. Was the alien attack even necessary? Like the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the atrocities the alien attack averted remain hypothetical. We have no certain way of knowing that they really were for the greater good, or whether they were unnecessary overreactions by men who had the power to make that decision on the part of hundreds of thousands of innocent lives. Throughout the original graphic novel, we are treated to a number of sequences throughout the story of Richard Nixon and his cabinets preparing for what would happen in the event of a nuclear strike. Moore and Gibbons clearly want the reader to feel that nuclear war is inevitable, so that a part of us, no matter which character we like more, will empathize with Veidt's existential crisis. But in the enlightened age of 2020, we know a few things 1986 Adrian Veit and the authors that created him did not. The Cold War didn't end in nuclear disaster. Even without the interference of a super genius, superhero slash supervillain, humanity kept going. There was no denuclearization, and America still elected a former cowboy actor with the initials RR to the White House. Even if you do not accept Damon Lindelof's acclaimed TV adaptation as canon to Alan Moore's original vision, it's hard to deny that its version of events is plausible. It is highly believable that even when a genius level intellect designs a false flag attack to force humanity into a utopia, we just don't play along. Veit may be the smartest man on the planet, but his plan to fix humanity's problems in 1980 was always a gamble. Dr. Manhattan points out Adrian's limitations when Veit attempts to have him destroyed. You are just a man. The world's smartest man poses no more threat to me than does its smartest termite. Veit sees himself as an enlightened individual who has pushed himself to absolute physical and mental perfection, but he can only go so far. His hubris and his ego prevent him from seeing that he's not above the rest of humanity. He is just a man even a genius cannot predict mankind's chaotic future. His moral certainty, like that of the men who dropped the atomic bombs on Japan, changed the course of their respective timelines for good. In 2020, there are plenty of billionaires with the same ego as Adrian Veidt, though none of them have decided to use their ludicrous amounts of wealth to try and fix humanity's problems. Instead of trying to force mankind into a utopia, they're more concerned with sending Teslas into space. Whether that is a good thing or a bad thing, we'll let you decide. That's a wrap on this season of Villains. We've taken you through some of our favorite Agents of Chaos. Godzilla showed us that something as immense as the atomic age can be both unspeakably terrifying as well as somehow comforting. A destroyer and a protector. Fight Club showed us that there is nothing more dangerous than the soul of a man beaten down by capitalism and channeled through toxic masculinity. We dug into the storied history of Poison Ivy, a woman who believes the only salvation for our planet is for the natural world to destroy us. And with Adrian Veidt, we've wound up back where we started, musing on how the ability to kill millions of people at the press of a button has irrevocably changed society. Our next season on Villains will take us away from the struggles of Earth and into galaxies beyond our wildest imaginations. A universe that has given us dozens of stalwart heroes, all of whom have been tempted by the dark side. Thanks for listening to Villains. We'll be back next week with the first episode in our Star Wars season. You can find all episodes of Villains and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Villains, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Villains on Spotify, just open the app and type Villains in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Villains was created by Drew Cole and Max Cutler. Villains is a Parkour Studios original and is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Villains was written by Robert Teamstra, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Alastair Murden.